All right, welcome everybody to Legal Tech Week for August 20th of 2021. This is Bob Ambrogi. I uh, am the author of the blog, Law Sites, and host of the podcast, Law Next, and uh, a little bit of a smaller panel today. Uh, and we are joined by the man who will soon be impersonating me at uh, <laughs> Joe Patrice. Joe, want to introduce yourself? Yeah, Joe Patrice from Thinking Like a Lawyer uh, and uh, Above the Law. I, uh, I, I'm not going to do that, but I, I, <laughs> there is a part of me that thinks I wonder, like not even that I would do it, do it, but I just wonder if I walked up and said it, if anybody at registration would notice. Like, I, I mean, I don't know. Like, are they, are they on top of it? I don't know. We'll see. Um, I probably won't bother to do that. But yes, uh, you will see me in Vegas for the like one other person who's going. Right. And that's assuming anybody shows up at the registration desk. Right. Uh, uh, Nikki. Sorry. <laughs> I lost my mute button. My name is Nikki Black. I am the legal technology evangelist with my case law practice management software. I am, um, I write legal tech columns for um, ABA Journal Above the Law, the Daily Record, and I also write weekly for the My Case blog. And um, I apologize for all the background noise at the outset. You can hear it, sorry. Can't hear anything. We can see your beautiful library that you're sitting in. Right, it's, I color coded every weekend. I spend hours putting all the books in order. <laughs> Get a life, <laughs> and Molly. I'm Molly McDonough. I'm a media strategist and consultant based in the Chicago area, and delighted to be here. I will not be going to ILTA. And Steve. That's going to be a theme. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hi everyone, Steve Embry here. I uh, write the blog Tech Law Crossroads, and I'm also chair elect of the ABA's Law Practice Division. And after considerable bitching and moaning, I will not be going to ILTA as well. <laughs> oh, there. <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, I, I guess we can start with our, our uh, weekly ILTA check-in. Uh, I guess I guess we'll check in again next week too. Maybe that'll be our last one. But uh, yeah, I think in a lot of ways, the, the, the big news this week was, was dropouts uh, as uh, first I manage. Uh, and then, yeah, well, present company excluded, but um, I mean, you know, I, I, I manage a, a major sponsor and, and vendor at uh, ILTA had announced they are not going to send people there. Um, and I think that was last Friday they, they announced that. And then uh, this week, Latera announced that. Uh, as I, I think I mentioned here last week, I, I've also, I've talked to some other companies in more this week that have said they're either dramatically scaling back their attendance or they are pulling out their attendance, but they didn't want to be quoted or don't want to go on the record about it, which I think is really interesting. Uh, and some law firms as well pulling back. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, some of the people we were all supposed to be meeting with there have told us, can't meet with us because we're not going to be there. Uh, so uh, yeah, Steve, Steve uh, let us know earlier this week that he wasn't going to go. And then uh, I actually, uh, I don't know why I blogged about the fact, but I also decided to, to not go uh, after uh, some real, real, uh, you know, it was, it was a tough decision. I, I really wanted to go for any number of reasons. Uh, and, uh, but uh, I, I, I'm kind of glad that I ultimately decided uh, 
that I just decided one way or the other, frankly, uh, and got off the fence and, and that made it better. But uh, I don't know. What do you think? What's, what's going to happen? Well, it, for me, it, I, it was a tough decision for me too. Uh, and I think you pointed out uh, in your piece, Bob, I mean, uh, it, it's, it's uh, the, the fact of being in Las Vegas with, with people who are partying and, and drinking and running around and, um, you know, the, the, the risks of, of that. And as, as we all know, it's impossible to get from any, any point A to point B in Las Vegas without walking through a casino where, you know, all these people would be that it kind of weighed on me. And, and, and uh, you know, my, my wife is in a at risk population uh, and uh, I, it was evaluating the risks and the benefits. I finally elected to, to, to not go. So, you know, I may be sorry. In fact, you know, I do have some regrets, even as we talk about it, as as, as Joe's getting ready to, to, to wing his way out there. But, uh, you know, hopefully next time around. I, I saw there was a, a, an interesting piece this morning I saw that Doug Austin did sort of musing about the about the future of uh, conferences and legal tech conferences and uh, yeah, you know, there, there probably is a future, but I wonder if it, it's not, it's going to be different than what we probably experienced in 2019 for the last time. Um, because, you know, we're so now used to doing things virtually, and there's a lot of efficiency and flexibility advantages to, to doing things virtually. And uh, that, that may stay and change sort of the, the nature and dynamics of, of conferences in general. We'll see. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, uh, Joe, were you going to say something? Oh, I, I, I mean, you, you just asked what's going to happen. I was going to yeah. say that the suite is going to be a party. But no, we're, <laughs> I guess me, Reese, and uh, Zach are just going to sit down with people and we'll let you all know what happens there. Yeah. I still don't <laughs> know whether there's other media going. I, I still haven't heard. Um, I confirmed with at least one other outlet that I thought might go that they were not invited. So they didn't go. So yeah. I don't is that, know. I mean, is Bloomberg's the, or. I can neither confirm or, nor deny yeah. that you <laughs> actually said that. Yeah. Yeah. I, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. It'll, it'll be interesting. Uh, I mean, I think, uh, you know, uh, I, I have a, a, a powerful FOBO that uh, made it a, a tough decision. And uh, honestly, I, I, in some ways I, I, I wanted to kind of support, ILTA for even doing this. I, I think it was, you know, at the point that ILTA decided to put this conference on in this hybrid fashion, it was the right decision, I think. Uh, at that point, given what all the indicators were, we were heading out of uh, this crisis and, uh, you know, people were itching to have some face-to-face -face contact. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think it was a... a, a somewhat of a courageous decision on their part to say they were going to go forward with a physical component to it. Uh, and, uh, and I think a lot of people are still going, you know, largely for that reason, they really kind of crave that, that physical aspect and that face-to-face -face contact. So uh, I, I hope it's, I hope it's success for the people who, who show up and uh, we will read all about it on above the law. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, I, 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 you, you hit it on the head. I think uh, we, well, anyone who's been a longtime listener of the show or wants to go back to previous episodes, when they first announced this, we were 
we were kind of all in on the idea that, and I was one of the more enthusiastic people. Like I've always felt Iltis put on a good show. I support them as often as I can. I've been covering them for years, uh, even if they don't seem to want me now. But uh, I've always supported the, the organization. When they said they were doing this, I was like, I felt like it was almost my mission to go because we needed to help them because, you know, they had a bad year and I'm sure they didn't make the money they needed to because people didn't like show up and they probably had hotel issues. I was like, let's do this for them. Uh, and then, you know, to see it kind of crumble, even though at the time they did it, I, I was the first person to say, by the time we get to the end of August vaccines, everyone's going to be vaccinated and everything will be fine. And uh, I did not bank on the number of people who would not. And uh, here we are. Yeah. I, I was to Steve's point, I will say, I, I do think uh, there's something to be said for the fact that we will all maybe rethink how we attend conferences or why we attend conferences going forward. Um, I think, uh, I mean, for me, you know, again, as I was kind of looking forward this week to thinking more thoroughly about whether to attend or not, and I was thinking, well, I'm going to be spending a lot of time uh, sitting there with vendors, getting the same kind of briefings that I can get on Zoom. I don't need to go to a conference to sit there and get a briefing with a vendor. I mean, I, I think that's one thing that can kind of scratch off the list in terms of reasons to go to a conference. Uh, and, and to me, it really does come down to the whole idea of, of networking and kind of what uh, wandering around the exhibit hall and that kind of spontaneity that happens uh, when you do that and, and when you run into people you know or meet people you don't know. And if, if, if that spontaneity is not, I mean, I'm not going to just be wandering around uh, and hanging out in bars uh, in, in Vegas uh, when, uh, you know, who, who knows uh, who else is hanging out in those bars uh, spewing germs in my way. Uh, so I don't know. It's, it, it's interesting. I'm, I'm starting to think that, and I'm reading some experts saying that this is just always going to be a thing now. COVID's always going to be there and mutating. And I think there's just going to be a, a level of risk involved that there just never was when it comes to interacting in public indoors <laughs> with people. Hopefully I'm wrong about that. And the experts are, that's a few that I've read that have said this are overreaching or are a little pessimistic about it, but I don't know. The, the, the lack of vaccinations is allowing things, this virus to do things <laughs> and mutate in ways that is not great. So we'll see, but it's unfortunate that we ended up where we are right now. Everything yeah. seems so bright and wonderful six weeks ago. <laughs> yep. To Monica Sandler's point, I don't know why, none of us know why they wouldn't want Joe at their table in their conference. <laughs> I hereby bequeath them my press pass. If I could do that. Uh, fair enough. And I, I, I think we're going to have a good time in the suite. We've got it set up. Uh, unfortunately, it appears as though you can't, uh, as part of their COVID protocols, you can't actually go to any room that you don't have the key to. Uh, they won't let the elevator work. So we'll have to I, don't worry, everybody who's signed up, I will set something up with you that like we'll have somebody give you the key to get you up and everything. So we'll be okay. But, uh, but you know, it's we're going to have a good time up there. Talk, chat with people, maybe recording some podcasts. We'll see. All right. Well, uh, off in the rest of the world. Um, got some uh, got some stuff to talk about this week. Uh, 
uh, Molly, you, you highlighted a story out of the uh, ABA Journal, which is apparently a magazine of some sort. I hadn't heard of it, but... Uh... <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's funny. I was thinking about this. Uh, LegalZoom uh, finally applied a year later uh, for ABS in uh, alternative business structure in uh, Arizona, which authorized this last year, went into effect in, in January. Um, and, you know, happy anniversary to alternative business structures in Arizona. Um, but I, I kept thinking, we've been talking about this being a possibility for so long, and it hasn't been approved yet, but it's just, it, it's, it seemed so inevitable. And now that it's here, I'm, I don't know how to feel about it. I think that um, I'm just eager to see what happens. Uh, and it'll be very interesting you know, to see which practice areas uh, these alternative business structures are focusing on. And this one in Arizona is focused on kind of what LegalZoom's bread and butter has been, which is um, business formation, taking it at that next level of small business advice and um, estate planning. Uh, so, you know, but there, there are a lot of solos and small uh, firms that focus right in that area. So it's an immediate competition. And it'll be interesting to see whether, um, you know, that they, that it opens up the market um, by helping lawyers reach that market or whether it'll just take over um, and whether it, lawyers can come up with profitable ways to have relationships with, with uh, LegalZoom. Yeah. That's it. Just see. That's Bob it. just agrees with me. <laughs> well, no, I, I think it's really, I think it's really, I thought the article, first of all, I thought even apart from the news, I thought Lyle Moran did a really good job of the article, just kind of covering the landscape of what's going on and how it fits into it. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't think it's any surprise that, that LegalZoom uh, is doing this. And, and as Lyle pointed out, uh, a Rocket Lawyer had already, uh, has already was one of the first, I think, to apply and get approved in, uh, in, in Utah and is doing similar stuff in Utah. Um, you know, I think the real question, if people haven't seen it also uh, this week, uh, issue of GP Solo Magazine, the magazine of the American ABA's, uh, what is it, Solo, Solo Small Firm General Practice Division, came out with a whole issue uh, devoted to this topic, uh, edited by Patrick Pallas uh, out of Washington and uh, with contributions from a whole uh, uh, a sort of a who's who of people who are dealing with uh, regulatory reform in the country. Uh, many of whom we recorded a podcast yesterday that'll be out Monday on, on my law next, but we did a whole panel on, on this, uh, including with uh, uh, Vice Chief Justice uh, Timmer, uh, Vice Ju Chief Justice Timmer out of Arizona, who was kind of the one who spearheaded it there. Um, but, uh, you know, I think, the, I think the question here really is, are these all pockets of experiments that's still at this point, or have we already reached a tipping point where you know, this is, there's no turning back now. What's happening in Arizona, what's happening in Utah is pretty soon just going to be happening all across the country. I think we're really close to a tipping point. Um, it would, I'd feel better about that if we saw California jump in, even in a small way. Um, but I, 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 think, I think we're to the point of on the consumer side and defensible um, reasons for closing to keeping an, a monopoly on the market and protectionist approach from bars that not flying anymore, um, just because the case has already been made of this massive untapped, unmet legal need in the market. 
Um, so I do think that there's some shift there. How that plays out uh, is going to be very interesting. I think one of the most interesting things uh, about Lyle's article that I really, and I'm kicking myself for not really fully considering this, is that LegalZoom is now kind of making its way as a player up against the big four. Um, um, taking on tax, and I just hadn't fully appreciated what that would mean with a, a company that's advanced so far and built so much on this kind of as a tech company, and then making making its way into this space in this tax space. So that that could be a very interesting um, interesting thing. And I, you know, and I'm not I I will just say all of this with the same um, concern other people um, naysayers have had for a long time, which is you know, I do worry that, you know, the bottom line is going to be um, the biggest, um, the biggest motivator for some of these larger companies. And that won't, that'll mean that um, the, the consumer of legal services won't be getting the, the quality of services they should be getting. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly uh, open, open to a lot of debate and discussion. Uh, on, on that point, I, I think, uh, you know, I think this, the strongest argument in favor of or, being at or near a tipping point, I think, as you hinted at, is, is simply, and, and Judy Perry Martinez was on the panel I recorded yesterday, former ABA president who, who led the study of the future of the legal profession for them. Uh, I mean, she made the point that there's just, I think it's just become painfully clear to, to so many in the legal profession that there is no alternative that, you know, what we have now just ain't working and it's not ever going to work. And we've got to do something radically different. Uh, and uh, this whole movement toward re-regulation uh, and uh, basically eliminating Rule 5.4 is not the only answer, but it's a big part of the answer, I think, in, in terms of going forward. So interesting times for sure. Any other thoughts on deregulation, re-regulation, regulatory reform? I agree with Molly that it's close to a tipping point, but I don't think we're at the tipping point. But I do think it's inevitable. I mean, Richard Susskind predicted this a long time ago, and so far he's right on almost everything. And <laughs> I think that it's moving in the direction he said that it would. So um, it, it, it feels to me like it felt when three or four states said lawyers could use cloud computing, but everybody still had security concerns. And now we're at you know the tipping point. The cloud, I think, was in about 2016 or so. And I feel like we're like in 2013 when it comes to, or 14 when it comes to like deregulation, but I think we're close to the tipping point too, but not quite there. So I agree with what Molly said on that. Yeah. And, and I would, I would, was just sitting here thinking about it in terms of California. I mean, once California goes, it's, I think it's game over at that point. Um, because, you know, you, you have such a big state with so many, so many people and so much stature and so many lawyers with offices in so many places and so much money. It, it just, um, I think it is, will have a significant domino effect. Same with maybe Florida or New York as well. I just feel like in my years, which, you know, I've only been doing this a bit, but in my years, it strikes me as though the slowest bar to actually acknowledge change is California all the time. Like, I feel like they, I mean, this was the bar that was still doing a three-day exam until a couple of years ago. Like, I just feel like they're, <laughs> they're going to be the hardest boulder to push. I don't know. I think New York might go faster. Who knows? 
I think the re-regulation of the bar in California is going to maybe speed some of that up. Um, so I, I do think, I think the, you know, kind of that separation of the advocacy and the, the actual bar regulation that's, is, is so far been actually what it's supposed to be, which is more focused on consumer protection and less on protectionist um, aspects of, of the legal profession. Right. I mean, with respect to this whole quality issue, I mean, this point about whether the quality of legal work will decline. I mean, something else the ABA is working on and some other groups are working on are establishing data collection standards to help us determine, you know, the, the effectiveness or, 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 you know, I guess another word is quality of the services that are being delivered through these alternative business structures. Uh, and, and both Utah and Arizona are putting in place, you know, fairly, well, hope to put in place, they haven't really yet, but they're beginning to put in place fairly rigorous systems for trying to maintain some data that will allow them to analyze the outcomes and the effectiveness of these alternative legal services. So, you know, it may ultimately become the case that we have a better sense uh, of how effective legal services are rather than right now, we, we just have this sort of, you know, assumption that if somebody is being represented by a lawyer, uh, you know, they're, they're getting uh, effective representation, which we all know is true. And we all know that there are lawyers who are offering legal services in areas where they probably aren't all that comp competent uh, or skilled. And uh, so who knows? I also, I did, before we close this one, I, I just want to throw out that I'm missing Caroline here because, you know, Rocket Lawyer and uh, LegalZoom have been operating in ABSs in, in the UK for many years now, and the legal system and the profession did not implode. Uh, so I, I, it's, there's no evidence that it, it threw the profession into chaos. Uh, what my bigger concern is, is that it hasn't necessarily improved that uh, or narrowed the access to justice cap. <laughs> right. That's what I think is it's, that's not what it's going to do. I, I'm less concerned about the quality of representation than the reality of what happens with capitalism. Capitalism, mm -hmm. as soon as you get companies involved that are concerned about the bottom line, they don't care about the little person. The whole point of capitalism is that it's money over people. And so I think it's just going to be ways for the big four and other similar organizations to make more money um, at the end of the day. And they're not going to, it's just going to be to the, and it will affect quality, but I think at the end of the day, it's just all about money. And that's not going to make the delivery of legal services better. So these measures are all bark and no bite. Oh, oh I was going to try to <laughs> make a dog joke too. <laughs> ah, too, too slow. You know, I mean, one thing that it might do, um, an un, you know, kind of an under the radar thing that it might do is there are people who go to subpar law schools all the time because they aren't really ready to go to law school and, but they want to help and they're passionate about helping. And, you know, and then they go to these law schools, they go massively in debt and then they aren't able to practice on the back end. You know, offering this is the sort of role that maybe they can channel that sort of passion and interest in helping toward. Uh, so it might do something nice from the law school perspective by, you know, driving some of these diploma mills out of, uh, out of existence. Which is a perfect setup for advice to those beginning their first year of law school, uh, which happens to be yeah. 
something you wrote about this week. Yeah, next week uh, <laughs> is the first week of law school for a lot of schools around the place. And uh, I wasn't even tracking it, but if you are on social media and follow like law, Twitter generally, tons of people started posting completely unsolicited advice for one else uh, on Wednesday. Um, it ranged from very good advice to, um, I think Ian Milheiser, uh, who is awesome, but I think his advice was insane. But uh, it, people people started posting a bunch of stuff about one uh, else and it became a huge thing. There were professors and lawyers and practitioners and like everybody was coming in with their unsolicited advice. And I kind of compiled a article of some of the best stuff that I saw. Uh, but it got me thinking, this goes back to a, a bit ago when we were talking about the idea of potentially putting legal tech on the bar exam, which we thought was not a great idea. But we said that what really needs to happen is law schools should probably integrate tech into their curriculum to deal with the reality. And it got me thinking, well, if we limit it to a conversation about tech, what advice would you give starting 1Ls about learning the kind of juncture between technology and law school that they're going to walk into? Um, you know, it, it can be as simple as, you know, you all may be of a generation that you don't use email anymore, but you need to go back to it because, uh, or whatever it is, like something uh, that you would, what advice would you give 1Ls uh, tech-wise? No one has any. Okay, cool. Uh, <laughs> food for thought uh, for everyone else. No, I, I thought email was a, a good one though because I was the generation of email, so it was natural to me when I got there. I'm not positive that you know direct messages and TikTok is going to take off as a professional thing. It might. I mean, things change. But if you're starting as a 1L and you've never really been weaned on the idea of how to write emails and communicate vis-a-vis -vis email, you probably should get back to that because that is a much more common way in which people are going to communicate with you professionally. That's good advice. I mean, I, to me, I, it's, you know, I, I think I talked a couple of weeks ago on the show about an interview I did for my Lawnex podcast with April Dawson, uh, a professor in North Carolina who talked talked at ABA Tech Show last year and talks a lot about kind of how to teach tech and how to incorporate tech into the law school curriculum. And, you know, I, I think her, her basic point is, um, is kind of, you don't, you don't, even need to look at it as sort of an intersection of tech and law. It's it needs to be fully integrated as one thing. I mean, tech and law practice are one thing now, and and that has to be made clear. I think from the first day of law school, uh, I think there probably are people who come into law school who are somewhat deficient in their tech skills, uh, and, and so maybe they need. Uh, you know, maybe they, maybe that, maybe first year writing class or something needs to be focused a little bit on sort of teaching some of those core, you know, off word and, and Excel skills and that sort of thing. But I, I mean, I think that, that if it is just, you know, just like you're, you're trying to incorporate thinking like a lawyer into the law school curriculum, it has to be working like a lawyer and using the yeah. tools that lawyers use. You know, Monica yes. makes a point. Oh, I was just going to say, Monica makes a point in the chat about uh, learning how to use some of the templates and outlining styles with Word. And I'll go off of that and just say Word. Uh, my cadets, like when I, because I teach uh, at West Point too, they don't even understand Word because they've never used it. They're in a generation where 
Google Docs is free and that's all they understand. And I was like, really? Well, I've got to teach you Word because I think it's going to come up in your life. Uh, so just learning Word is something they need to do. Yeah. Yeah. And I was going to add, you know, to, to Bob's point, I mean, it's, uh, it's an attitudinal thing. I mean, you go to law school and there's no discussion of, or emphasis on technology whatsoever. You come away from that thinking, well, that's not a terribly important thing to, to even know anything about or inquire into or be curious about. And uh, I think that's kind of where we are in a lot of law schools right now. So it's like a non-issue. So you walk out thinking, well, why do I need to care about technology? I didn't mean, talk about it in law school. <laughs> Along those lines, and since Joe asked about advice, um, I, I'll just share what I what I keep telling um, our college students who are in my my family and and my own kid, um, and it would be the same for and I tell law students and uh, folk all the time, um, get to know actual lawyers and people in the professions <laughs> that you're interested in, um, and I know there are lots of um, complaints about bar associations, but you know, if you can get involved as a student and get active and start meeting people, real people doing real work, um, you know, not the theoretical stuff you're reading about, then I think that's like one of the best things you can do to kind of broaden your mind and understand on the tech side what tools people are actually using when you really get to know what, what people are, are doing in their day-to-day -day lives. Um, I just think, you know, it's been fun watching some students over the summer and over this last year um, get involved in some of these virtual activities, how much attention they get from the older folks like me um, who are eager to share and mentor. Um, and, I, you know, they wouldn't even think to ask in some uh, situations for help. But, you know, I've seen um, whole groups of people just be willing to help advance a young person's career just because they got interested in a in a committee or a group. Mm -hmm. well, and what Joe said really resonated with me about um, them not understanding Word. Uh, and it's other basic tech too, like I have a daughter who just is getting dropped off at college as a sophomore today. And last night she came in and she said, mom, I don't know how to use my voicemail, it's never worked. And I had to, she's never had voicemail on her phone because she's never needed it. And she finally got a message that she wanted to see what it was. So I had to call <laughs> AT&T and get it reprovisioned as re-revision they call it. Cause I think it always thought it was an Android phone instead of an iPhone and so it never worked. And, but she's had a phone for six years and she's never ever used her voicemail. So that just that's something that basic kids these age don't, you know, these days, kids these days don't know how to use. <laughs> get, get that really, kid a rotary dial phone. <laughs> It just I really like, no, I mean, this is exactly why I thought this was a good conversation because, you know, we, we do, especially on the tech side, we think about the future and we talk always about like, oh, this new thing is going to come and move on. But like with law, there really is a nerfing effect where you have to kind of go backwards and be, I know that you all talk on Slack and that will be in your law firm, but you're going to need to learn email etiquette because that's going to be more there. Like you just have to pull them back. You got to learn how voicemail works. You got to learn how word works, even though there are better word processors potentially. Uh, it's just, yeah, I, I, yeah, I think that's this. That's why I thought this would be a fun talk. Yeah. I, I, the, the, my, uh, 
this year's this this, this week's episode of Law Next, <laughs> I had uh, Harry Osofsky, who's the new uh, dean at Northwestern uh, Law School, and and one of the things that she was talking about is the need to teach virtual lawyering competency, that that's going to be a thing from now on, uh, remote lawyering, and uh, that's going to be something that they're going to start to incorporate in their curriculum. You know, so. uh, that's interesting, Bob. Uh, Chase Law School in Northern Kentucky has a uh, uh, professor who is offering online virtual kind of class for uh, for law students. Uh, it just came out in our uh, Bench and Bar magazine. I was reading it, thinking that's that's really cool for somebody to be doing that. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I am I am. Uh, whenever anybody asks me for advice about law school, I'm I always say you know I should write a book called "Don't Do What I Did" because I, <laughs> I am I am by no means a, a role model for. I spent my first year trying to organize to get my uh, Boston College to disinvest from companies that supported apartheid in, in South Africa. And, and that was my most academic year. So <laughs> uh, went downhill from there. Um, speaking of competency um, in tech, uh, Nikki, you've got another uh, ethics opinion uh, uh, that we can talk about that touches on some of those issues. Surprise, surprise, right? Um, I uh, wrote about it for the Daily Record, but um, it is behind a paywall. So here's the article that initially. Um, where I initially found it, and it's California has um, offer uh, put out a interim opinion for comments, and it's um, one of the many that have come out since the pandemic about remote working ethics and different issues that lawyers need to consider when they um, work remotely, um, and those include competency. Uh, working for a jurisdiction in which you're not, you know, unauthorized practice of law in a jurisdiction in which you're not licensed, confidentiality. The part that I found the most interesting and that I wrote about for the daily record, but like I said, it's behind a paywall, is touched upon in the article that I linked to, um, and it's also in the opinion itself, is the section that dealt with competency. And um, there were a number of things that I thought were particularly interesting. Um, my The first one was that they basically said like, cloud computing, of course, lawyers can use it with this little caveat, but of course you have to vet the provider, which, you know, was um, so interesting to me compared to the very first opinions that came out, like by New York. New York was one of the first ones to issue an opinion on um, cloud computing, saying that lawyers could use it in like 2008, I want to say. And, you know, back then it was lawyers can use cloud computing, but with like this long list of you have to do this, you have to do that, you have to do this. And, you know, here's all the questions you have to ask and here's all the things you have to be aware of. And this was one line. Lawyers can use cloud computing, but make sure to vet the provider. Like it, it, how far we've come since my book came out in 2012 on cloud computing, where everybody acted like it was heresy that I would suggest that lawyers could use cloud computing. Um, so that was really exciting to me. And then uh, the other um, thing that I absolutely loved which I'm sure no one will find surprising since I work for my case was that they actually said, when you work remotely, part of competency is having everything in one centralized location. And a great way to do that is using law practice management software. You know, thumbs up to having that in a <laughs> ethics opinion. I agree hundred percent, but it was um, great to see that there. And then the last thing was um, an unusual take on competency, which was, um, and it's highlighted in the article that I linked to, was how they talked about um, the pandemic uh, 
brings on all sorts of unique stressors, including having to work um, from home, childcare issues, people being ill, whatever, like all these different stressors that are very unique and that, um, and, or you could become ill yourself such that part of competency is making sure that you have plans in place so that if these things happen or you become, your mental health becomes unstable um, or you're sick, that your clients are taken care of and that there's a backup plan for them that's in place. So I thought that was interesting. That was discussed uh, within the context of competency. And then they also touched upon a, just the last interesting or important thing I think that should be pointed out or highlighted is uh, smart speakers. And when you work from home, um, whether there's smart speakers around you or you may have people working in your house, um, you know, people visiting your house, to play with your kids. Um, you I want to make sure that you're there. So I <laughs> I think you just activated your uh, smart dog. <laughs> the voice command. Okay. <laughs> but so I thought that was interesting too. And they did say that with smart speakers, you need to turn them off. Um, I think that's a smart course of action. It's easy to do that. Just be on the safe side. Although I don't know if you always need to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I on. give up. I'm going to hand this over to someone else. <laughs> I, you know, I thought it was, I actually thought it was really interesting for that last point that you talked about, Nikki. I mean, the, the other parts of the uh, ethics opinion from, again, just reading that article that you linked to, and I haven't read yours, but seem, seem to be, you know, to some extent mirror some of the other opinions we've seen come out about work from home for lawyers. But this, this part about, I'm just reading from the article you linked to, it says, in addition, a lawyer's duty of competence includes the mental, emotional, and physical ability reasonably necessary for the performance of legal services. I don't think I've ever seen that anywhere before. I, I thought that was fascinating. I mean, it's like the ethical duty to meditate or, or to go to the gym. I don't know. Uh, I mean, it, it makes a whole lot of sense, but I don't, I'm not sure I've ever seen that put out there explicitly in an ethics opinion before. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting, especially under competency. I mean, it makes sense. You can't be competent if you're, you know, strung out or something, or I don't know, so stressed out you can't think straight. So that does, but I, but I don't know if there's an ethical duty to meditate. Let's push it a little far. But <laughs> it just, I think it's just so shocking because it just acknowledges that that lawyers are human in the competency component. You know, right. I, the interesting part of that is, is I was sitting here listening to it is. Um, you know, all, all these law firms that, that lean on associates for an ungodly number of billable hours per year, which is, and, and hinges their bonuses on, on that, which, which results in working too much, uh, not, not being fully competent. I mean, you can't work 12, 14, 16 hours a day and your 16th hour be as good as your first hour. It's just not possible, you know, so... I don't know where, where that might lead, but uh, it, it is a it's a huge problem, um, and, and has been for years. Well, associates all over the country will be leaving at five o'clock and citing this uh, ethics opinion. <laughs> and well, they in, should. Yeah, in the medical profession, you know how now there's regulations in place that prevent, um, I think, residents from working more than eighty hours a week. It's still a ridiculous number of hours a week, but 
compared to what it was before, like where they just literally would have to work 24 hour shifts and not sleep because it was for the safety of the patients. This is sort of the same analogy. It's for the client's um, uh, rep representation, you know, so that they're mm -hmm. adequately represented and competently represented. So. Uh, Steve, what do you got this week? Um, Law 360 came out with their uh, annual diversity snapshot. Um, and, you know, it's, it's uh, deja vu all over again, a sad, sad state of affairs. Um, the, they've been doing it seven years. Um, and the first year they did it in 2014, they reported that 14% of the lawyers of the firms surveyed, and there was a, a close to 300, I think. 14% were, were minority or, or people of color. 2021, 18%. Whoop de doo. Uh, partners, partners, people of color in 2014, 8%. Uh, 2020, 10.8%. Uh, the it's just no progress. And you know, this, the thing that's just amazing is all these firms have all these diversity initiatives and diversity chairs and all these things. And yet just keeps spinning, spinning our wheels uh, in a profession that is by and large white and by and large male and <clears throat> doesn't seem to be changing despite all the concern and all the, all the talk. And I don't, you know, I, I, in talking to the to the 360 representatives, you know about why that is the case. Um, I think in large part it's it's people of color don't have role models within the firm to look up to see some who, who has been successful. In fact, they have precious few people in the firm anywhere that look like they do. But I think maybe more than that, it's it's a problem of sort of the, the, the patrician kind of way law firms work. I mean, partners select associates to work with them on projects that look and talk and think like they do. And origination credits in most firms reward status quo, which is people who think and, and look like the partners that have the credits without, without getting more credits in the hands of more diverse people. The diverse lawyers can't have the kind of power and clout to make changes within law firms. And, you know, I, I just, uh, it's just sad commentary on the profession as a whole that we, we can't make progress uh, on this. And, and it's particularly sad when you think about litigation, right? I mean, you have a, a predominantly white population of litigators serving a population that is no place close to uh, the kind of uh, percentages of, of diversity and color that are within law firms. And it's- uh, And with, in some areas of the country, juries that are- Yeah, that's what, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'd, you know, and I, 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 don't, uh, I don't know what the answer is. I, I, I wish somebody had the answer, but we, we you know, as, as a profession that's built upon equity and reason and rule of law, we, we should be ashamed that, that we don't make any more progress than what we do. Yeah, well, it was really tough. It's, it's yeah, a profession that's not quite built that way. Um, so it, it's built with a lot of exclusionary uh, processes in place, including bar exams and thresholds and um, in systemic structures that are going to take a, a long time to change. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I, I guess that that should have should have made it made it a little clearer. It's it's not a profession that is built that way. It's a profession that professes to be built that way. <laughs> yeah, I thought one of the really troubling findings out of it also was was that it it kind of showed that. I mean, we, we've talked before about the pipeline and increasing the pipeline. We had Brian Parker from the Glen Innovators on this show uh, a while ago now, uh, talking about how they're working to kind of increase the the, the pipeline um, of of new lawyers going into uh, of diverse new lawyers going into firms. But this the data that uh, Law Three Hundred and Sixty compiled showed that the pipeline is in fact greater than what firms are taking in. So the, the it. I mean, I'm, sh I'm sure it is partly a, and to a large part, a pipeline problem. But um, there are the the data suggested there there the pipeline is wider than what's going into the firms. And once they get into the firms, they leave in greater numbers. They don't move right. up through the internal firm pipeline in right. in this you know to the same extent as as white lawyers do. Uh, really, really troubling uh, data. And yeah. yeah, one of the one of the statistics that that stood out to me was when looking at partnership promotions over the over in 2020 and you know of the lawyers that were promoted to partner three percent were black um four percent were hispanic you know asian uh, did a little bit better at six percent but i mean how can you how can you how can you build a diverse law firm when your numbers of partnership promotions are so unrepresentative of the population as a whole as to not even not even be close. I mean, we're not talking population of a whole and you're 30% in general population is, I mean, we're talking 3%. I mean, that's, uh, that's just, yeah. it's astounding. <laughs> yeah. And, and the firm, I, I mean, they broke down by, by firms and among, among the large firms, Morrison and Forster was, was the most diverse among large firms. And yet as the most diverse firm, it had only, Blacks made up only two point six percent of its partners and four point seven percent of its associates. So that's that's considered the gold standard. Uh, uh, you know, not considered, but that that is what, in fact, is the gold standard right now. So that shows just how how dismal it is as you go down the ranks from there. So full disclosure, I've worked with legal innovators for a while now, and I, I they're doing some just really interesting work in this area. And I just encourage people to listen to their podcast, The Law in Black and White, and some of their programs on this on this topic. And I, I, I really think that they have some, they've identified the problems and many solutions. And it's, it's definitely as the Dean's program that I posted there really talks about how the solutions there are met, there need to be a number of solutions. It's not going to be any one thing. It's going to be a mixture of a lot of things that need to happen um, to improve and increase diversity in legal, including a lot of what we talked about earlier with mental health and well-being, and focus on the total, the whole lawyer, and not um, you know this this idea of what an ideal lawyer is supposed to look like. Well said. Yeah. Uh, and yes, that podcast is great. And uh, full disclosure, my son produces it. Uh, so uh, I think that's a great thing. Um, we, uh, I don't know if anybody else have anything else. It's one other thing I want to actually, I meant to mention that I, I forgot about uh, that I didn't put on my list was just this, uh, this, this, uh, uh, um, what, what are we going to call it? A, a guide that came out this week that I, I wrote about this 
uh, a, a, a working a working group uh, spent the last 18 months producing this guide for effective and efficient drafting of legal documents, essentially. Uh, and to, to Joe's point before about uh, Word versus uh, Google Docs, this is all about Word. Uh, but it's it's uh, it's actually a really fascinating uh, document. Uh, they, they've they've to me this is the like the equivalent of the EDRM for e-discovery. It, it takes the whole process of of drafting legal documents and breaks it down into the component phases, which you would never think about in the process of drafting a document. Uh, and then, but then talks about the things you should be thinking about at each phase and, and best practices uh, for creating effective documents. And then it gives you the guide to the technology tools that can help you at each of those phases, whether it's something as simple as a citation checker or you know, table of authorities generator, that kind of a thing. Uh, but it's it's a really uh, interesting and practical document, uh, and they're talking about trying to create more of these to sort of serve as guides uh, in other areas of of, of uh, law practice, and and you know all with an eye is the project was kind of led by Ivy Gray, who probably a lot of people know. She's at WordRake and has written a lot about the duty of tech competence, and and to her this is a you know a, a step toward enhancing the ability of lawyers to become technologically competent by giving them this kind of a guide that breaks down the component parts of a task and how you can use technology to not just be more efficient, but more effective at what you're doing. So put in a little plug for that. Anybody else have anything else they want to talk about this week? Put in a link for that too. Ilta. Yeah. Um... We're gonna do that, uh, and we will. I'll I'll be putting out dispatches. Um, you know, I mean, I I guess like uh, Kentucky's own uh, Hunter S. Thompson, I'll be putting out dispatches from Las Vegas. I, I'll cover it probably about like he covered that motorcycle race. So uh, Zach, Zach Warren will be your Dr. Gonzo or Dr. Gonzo. Yeah. Well, actually I was so looking forward to when we were all going, cause I was absolutely going to composite all of you else in the suite into like a Gonzo Esquire kind of a character. Uh, but yeah, I guess not. It'll just yeah. now be obvious that I'm talking about Zach and Reese. Yeah. Fear and loathing in Las Vegas. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, pack up your trunk and uh, hit the road. Well, have fun, everybody. Uh, have good, good. Uh, we look forward to reading your stuff, Joe, and uh, seeing about what happens next week. And everybody else, stay well. Have a good weekend. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening, watching, attending. So long.